yeah, I might be a little too excited about this. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> this is What's with Washington. Where you ask the questions about our region, about the place we live. About your neighborhood. Anacostia. Prince George's County. Pentagon City. Woodley Park. Columbia Heights. And WAMU Answers. I'm a second generation Washingtonian. Ward 5. This is What's with Washington. I'm Michaela LaFrac. Today, we're talking wombats. I know, right? Where did that come from? I'm joined in the studio by producer Ponce Rutch. Hey, Ponce. What's going on, Michaela? Hey, so a few months back, we got this amazing question in the What's With Washington inbox, and it was from a woman named Sylvia Jimenez. Why does the National Zoo not have a wombat? A wombat. Like, what? It is such a weirdly specific question, and honestly, I didn't even know what a wombat looked like. I was sort of picturing a kangaroo thing, but shorter. They are pretty cute. So I called up Sylvia, and she agreed to meet me at the National Zoo. Wombats are fantastic, like furry little truck bear pigs. <laughs> they can look kind of slow, but apparently they can sprint up, I think it's 25 kilometers an hour. You might have to... Uh, Fact check that for me. So, you know, they have a bowl you over attack, apparently. And then they have a lead you into their burrow and slam your head against the wall with their cartilaginous hindquarters attack, which is great. Cartilaginous hindquarters. That is my favorite. I love that. An amazing term. So to answer Sylvia's question, my first stop was to the offices of the National Zoo's leadership. I wanted to talk to someone who could explain how the zoo makes all its decisions about animals. That's where I met Brandy Smith. I had an, an aunt who was a stewardess and she traveled to Australia and she sent me a book on Australian wildlife when I was a little kid. And I'm like, oh my God. And that was how I knew I wanted to be a zoologist. She loves Australia. This is so perfect. But instead of getting right into the wombat issue, I, for some reason, asked her a question first that reveals what a freaking 12-year-old I am at heart. Because I am responsible for all of the animals at the zoo, I do not have a favorite animal here. I love them all equally. Oh, what a cop out. I know. She was very diplomatic. And she obviously must have a favorite, but I will investigate that some other time. Ultimately, the number one thing that we think about when bringing animals here to the National Zoo is how well can we care for them? Then the next thing we look at is, um, is this animal going to be um, interesting and engaging for the visitors? So here's where we get into the wombat stuff. And there's some bad news. So wombats are crepuscular. They're what now? (laughs) Crepuscular means that wombats are most active at dawn and dusk. So that means the zoo would need to build them this special exhibit that basically flips night and day so that they're active when visitors are there. Brandy told me they'd be willing to overlook the whole crepuscular thing if this association that kind of manages all the zoos in America recommended wombats as a good animal for zoos to have. That recommendation would basically make them a higher priority. The animals that people think of when they come to zoos, you know, the elephants, bears, lions, tigers, giraffe, um, really almost all of the charismatic mega mammals are managed at a nationwide level. Okay. Charismatic Mega Mammals! I know, it's the best phrase ever. I really want to start a punk band called Charismatic Mega Mammals. Charismatic Mega Mammals! And then like, drums, 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 drums. (laughs) Then I come out. Spotlight. Yeah. Anyway, there are these things called taxon advisory groups or tags. And what they do is they examine every species in existence. So the bear tag will look at all of the bears on the planet and say which ones are most appropriate to be managed in zoos. 
So the marsupial group, for example, will say like, hey, get wallabies, but not wombats or whatever. Long story short is that wombats are not on the marsupial list. Oh, dear. I know. But these lists are really helpful because zoos don't just have unlimited space to put animals in. Like a few years ago, they got rid of giraffes, which are super popular because the zoo decided to give the elephants more space. Oh, I remember our giraffes. I know, but if they can't fit giraffes, which people love, it's not looking good for wombats. And the other thing is resources. So take the pandas, for example. They obviously take a ton of resources. They eat all that bamboo. They have that huge habitat. But the whole panda shebang is funded by this one private donor named David Rubenstein. That name sounds familiar. Yes. He also funded the restoration of the Washington Monument a couple years ago. Big, big name around town in philanthropy. Okay. But basically, Brandy described for me this five-part test that they used to decide if they should get a new type of species at the National Zoo. Please give me the test. All right. We're going to make the wombat decision for ourselves. Okay. Good luck, wombats. Question number one. Will it thrive in zoo care? Yes. Right? That is correct. Question number two. Will it give visitors a great experience? It'll give Sylvia a great experience. But the crepuscular thing. It's going to have to be a no. Question number three. Does it fit into a broader Smithsonian research area? I don't think I know the answer to this one. The answer is no. They are not studying wombats. Question number four. Are other American zoos signed on to help collectively manage the species? Uh, no, because it's Australian? Exactly. That tag did not recommend wombats. Question number five. Does the zoo have the money? Rubenstein does. I know. Come through. The zoo does not? The zoo does not. Hmm. So wombats only pass the first question about thriving in zoo care, which means we will not be getting a wombat anytime soon. So sad. I know. But what a fun question. Very specific, very unexpected. And I learned so much about what zoos do. Funny you should say that because Sylvia's question has me thinking about even bigger questions. Oh, no. Like what? Like, why even zoos? Huh? This will make sense in a moment, I promise. Okay. Why even zoos? Ponzi is going to tell us that one next. Hi, it's Diane. The next meeting of my book club is on Wednesday, May 31st at 1 p.m. Eastern. I'll host a discussion of Mad Honey by Jody Pico and Jennifer Finney Boylan, followed by a conversation with the authors. Find out more and register at dianereem.org slash book club. What's your question about the Washington region? We want to know. Go to wamu.org slash what's with or give us a call 202-885-7250. We'll choose our future episodes from the questions you send in. Send us your questions. I'm Daisy Rosario, managing producer of podcasts here at WAMU. To support the What's With Washington podcast and more fascinating stories about the region, visit WAMU.org and click the Donate button to become a member today. Thanks so much. Okay, so why even zoos? Right. So as soon as you told me about your quest to determine whether wombats belong in the National Zoo, my gut said, whoa, this is a lot of work for any animal to end up at the zoo, let alone 3,000 critters. And that led me to one big question. 
Why do we even have zoos? Like, how did we end up with a national zoo in the first place? Oh, girl, you're going way back. Yes, I am. <laughs> I started at the Smithsonian Archives, which is where the Smithsonian keeps every item or record that's even a little bit related to its own history. It looks pretty sparse for a Smithsonian building, except that I could see archive boxes and a reel-to-reel tape player in a corner. That sounds really cool. <laughs> but maybe I'm just a big nerd. <laughs> <laughs> I am too. And that's where I met Pam Henson, who was just finishing a meeting about how to manage the 158 million things in the Smithsonian's collections. I am the historian for the history of the Smithsonian in Smithsonian Institution Archives. Which seems like a huge job. It is. It's a big, big job because it's a big, complicated place. Pam and I nerded out immediately. She started quizzing me. Which Smithsonian collection is the most massive? Plants? Nope. I'm not even close. I'm Insects. Like, that makes sense. I love her tone. I love how she just shuts you down. It's embarrassing because I worked in the insect unit for a summer. But this is neither here nor there. The history of the National Zoo starts in 1881, when the Smithsonian Institution opens its very first museum. They call it the United States National Museum. Imagine every Smithsonian all in one building. They have a little bit of everything, some scientific drawings, some artifacts from ancient civilizations, and of course, the taxidermy, the animal models. Dead animals? Yeah, I might be a little too excited about this. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so you know when you go inside natural history museums, there are often life-size dioramas of animals? Before there were zoos, the best option for people to see animals that didn't live in their neighborhood was taxidermy. Well, in the old days, you weren't going to go to those places and see them in nature. So the Smithsonian hires the hottest name in taxidermy, William Temple Hornaday. Hello, I am William Temple Hornaday, beloved taxidermist. William Temple Hornaday's models were the most lifelike in the biz. He made a pretty significant salary from stuffing and mounting people's fancy trophy game, and then he would use that funding to travel the world and watch animals in their own habitats, do research so that he could make the best taxidermy. It's why Hornaday gets the Smithsonian gig. And one of his first jobs is to create an arrangement of bison, you know, the American buffalo. And he'd been out west earlier, and he had seen these massive herds going by. When the first white man landed at Jamestown and Plymouth, this country had 700 million acres of grassland, much of which was grazed by bison. Except we all know what happened to the American bison. But the white men destroyed the bison and put cattle and sheep on the grasslands. Too many cattle and sheep. As Hornaday heads out on his expedition for the Smithsonian, people warn him that this job isn't going to be easy. There just aren't that many bison anymore. But he's skeptical. I don't believe you. I saw the herds of bison with my own eyes. Until he's out there with his crew, struggling to find any bison anywhere. Oh, uh, where'd they go? It was a shocking experience, and it brought home an important realization, one that Hornaday would say again and again. It's extermination, I tell you. It's extermination, damn it. And it's important that Hornaday uses the word extermination because it signifies a kind of turning point in conservation. Extinction, the very idea that whole groups of animals could die off, was a relatively new concept. 
scientists had been puzzled by heaps of fossils that didn't make any sense. Elephant fossils that they found in countries where there were no elephants, and fossils of animals that just didn't exist in nature. But most of the world was like, No. Why would God put something on the Earth just for it to die off? Now, if you're Hornaday, you're trying to figure out what causes species to go extinct. Is it earthquakes? Floods? Or humans? And Hornaday is one of the first scientists to say, Well, with bison, humans are definitely the culprit. In 1889, he writes, There is no reason to hope that a single wild and unprotected individual will remain alive in 10 years hence. And admitting that humans are at fault just kills Hornaday, who's quickly becoming one of a whole 19th century field of nature writers expressing their emotional connection to wildlife. Going to the mountains is going home. There is a delight in the hearty life of the open. We need the tonic of wildness. So if you love nature and your nature is disappearing, then the next logical step is that you need to conserve it. You need to save the bison! Except... Hornaday experiencing this internal sea change while he's doing this job for the Smithsonian is really inconvenient. Oh no. To make bison taxidermy, I have to kill bison. The longer that Hornaday has to search for bison, the more he feels that he's going to be just one more person destroying nature. He would later reflect, When game was plentiful, I believed that it was right for men and boys to kill a limited amount of it for sport and for the table. I have been a sportsman myself, but times have changed, and we must change also. Hornaday and his crew do eventually spot some bison, and they capture a baby one. And he does bring one little bison back with him, Sandy. My sweet Sandy. He gets this germ of an idea that maybe he can start breeding them and save the bison. So he does this totally crazy thing. He brings Sandy back to D.C., but just a few months after his arrival, bison baby Sandy eats a patch of clover and dies. No! And Sandy's death totally devastates Hornaday. And he decides... We're not going to have bison until we can figure out how to keep them alive. But a few folks had caught wind of Sandy, and they decide that Hornaday deserves a second chance. And they start donating their own animals. Ducks, chicks, whatever. And suddenly, they have a whole collection. You're welcome, America. They call it a vivarium, basically a makeshift zoo. And something called the Department of Living Animals. And Pam even has a list of all the stuff that they were keeping on the National Mall. Buffalo, Virginia deer, a jaguar, two black bears, a grivet monkey, two red fox, cross fox, two gray fox, coyote, vipers and snakes, and a box. And these donations didn't only come from visitors. Circuses would winter their animals at the zoo. And with those animals came their keepers and their trainers, who were probably the most experienced job candidates when it came to animal care. But they also brought this very competitive circus culture and a lot of secrecy about their trade, which, as we learned from your reporting, is not at all how zoos work now. No, it's totally not. The folks I met are always talking to other zoos and researchers about best practices. Right. I even heard about a researcher who's taking blood samples from the elephants at the National Zoo to examine whether the animals are feeling stressed. Really? Oh. Pretty wild, right? So after we talked about the whole elephant habitat revamp at the National Zoo, I took a little field trip. Hi, guys. Oh, my God, do they know you? Honey. 
So that's Ronnie and Spike. And this is Tony Barthel, the elephant curator. And at this moment, the elephants have recognized Tony's voice, and they're walking toward us. Hey, girl. And then the elephants leaned their weight into the gate that was between us and grunted a little hello. And they're funny. They're like, you know, when you go check the mail and you come back in and your dog thinks you've been gone all day. And they're the same way. If, if you separate them for a little while and then, they, then they're reunited, even if it's just one of them walked down to the end of the barn and then came back up, there's often uh, vocalizations and, and peeing, which is something they do when they get worked up and, you know, kind of rumbling and banging around. And it's kind of like a whole celebration. I learned that elephants are super social animals. They tend to live in large herds with baby elephants and parent elephants and grandma elephants. And in the last few decades, a lot of zoos have expanded their elephant habitats to keep bigger herds so the elephants can have the same social lives as they would in the wild. This sounds like a really far cry from the days of William Temple Hornaday, who was, you know, bringing this bison onto the National Mall and didn't know exactly what to feed it. And all these other animals were appearing and they, you know, they hadn't given it all this thought as they do now. Exactly. People were showing up and being like, oh, you got a bison? Like, maybe you want a bald eagle to go with it. (laughs) Actually, one of the interesting things that Pam mentioned is that People still show up, especially after Easter, with like animals in shoeboxes, like the ducks that they got on Easter morning. Like, hey, zoo people, like, you know how to take care of a duck. Here you go. They still donate the animals? And the zoo has to be like, thanks, but no thanks. I mean, it makes total logical sense that the zoo isn't going to get a wombat in the next five years or even longer. But Sylvia loves them so much, and breaking it to her kind of sucked. So I know, I'm sorry. It's okay. <laughs> I felt horrible. But surely, surely in this zoo with hundreds of different types of species, there must be something that would speak to Sylvia in the way that wombats did. Or at least comes close. Yeah, how, who would you even ask about that? I asked my girl Brandy Smith, the zookeeper, to recommend an animal for us to go visit together. Wait. Cute. I know. I know. So she recommended the Red River Hog, which kind of looks like an orangey version of Pumbaa from The Lion King. All right, what do we think? Bigger than a wombat, obviously. Mm-hmm. Solid, low to the ground. Nice. It wasn't true love, but she liked it, and we tried. And Sylvia did say she was really happy to know more about the National Zoo and how the whole place works. So thank you, Sylvia, for asking us this strange and really wonderful question. This show is produced by Daisy Rosario, Ponce Rutch, and me, Michaela Lafrac. This week's episode features the vocal talents of Murray Horwitz as William Temple Hornaday, Morgan Givens as John Muir, Luis Melgar as Theodore Roosevelt, and A.C. Valdez as Henry David Thoreau. Original music by Ben Privet. WAMU's general manager is J.J. Yore. Andy McDaniel oversees all content. Jeffrey Katz is our news director. Want to learn more about the people and places you heard about in this episode? Head over to wamu.org slash what's with to get all the details. While you're there, you should browse around. Our newsroom has answered tons of questions from listeners, and the answers are all there. That's wamu.org slash what's with. New episodes of What's With Washington drop every Tuesday. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Michaela LaFrac. See you next time.